Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Vivek Hojadadine. Vivek, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Mike? I am awesome. I've been really looking forward to this conversation because you've got an extremely interesting background and you also have a, a new book that's out. So why don't you share a little bit about you and then we'll dive into this conversation. Uh, sure. I, um, I was born in London uh, to Iranian parents. Um, my dad was a university professor um, I think studying for his PhD at the time. And so we, for some reason, got to travel a lot. So I did experience um, uh, being in London, um, both in uh, uh, the early years and later on uh, as for middle school. Uh, I went to kindergarten in Moscow, Idaho. So for the longest time, I thought that was the Moscow. So when people said Mos- Moscow is in Russia, I'm like, nah, it's, just, it's in Idaho. It's not even on the map, which is interesting. <laughs> Um, and then we went back to Iran and, uh, I, uh, uh, went to, um, I was there, uh, right before the revolution, after the revolution, um, after the war, all the way to, uh, getting my master's degree and then leaving to Japan for my PhD. And then somehow I ended, ended up in, in California. So yeah, traveled a lot. Well, it's definitely some experiences. And as we were kind of talking a little bit in the pre-show, it's like all dynamically different places, but I'm sure there are a lot of similarities as well uh, in life. And I think, you know, a lot of people think, oh, wow, Moscow, Idaho must be completely different than California or, you know, wherever you happen to live in Iran or or Japan or anything like that. But again, once, once you find... You know, where you're going to live. We all have our habits, the things that we do. And it's like, well, I'm still going to do the same things. It might be a little different uh, as far as what I can acquire, but as far as getting up, breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, doing the work that we do, whatever the case may be, you can do that basically anywhere. And obviously we've seen that now with, with this pandemic and virtual work, it really doesn't matter necessarily where you happen to be sitting or standing. Uh, it's uh, The world is big and also very small. That's right. We've gone from traveling a lot and being physically in many places to being pretty stationary for a very long time with the pandemic. Hopefully that's all going to change soon. So I'm looking forward to that for sure. You and me both. So one of the things, many things that you know a lot about is AI. And we're seeing, even though it may not be you know, awareness for a lot of people, but we're already seeing a lot of benefits that AI is going to provide society. But uh, ideally, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, what you got you interested into it, and then then we'll segue from there and talk about this book. Uh, yeah, sure. I um, I got into AI simply out of curiosity. I mean, I like to figure things out uh, through breaking them, usually. <laughs> Not putting them together. My grandma used to complain about that all the time. It's like, you know, you, you took the whole the old gramophone apart, but you're not putting it back together. I'm like, yeah, it's boring now. I know how it works. Um, and so I kind of, there was a point in time when I f- thought I figured out how computers work. And I was studying software at the time. Uh, and then I was challenged by a friend to start thinking about how the brain works and what is intelligence. 
And, um, you know, as most of us coming into the AI world uh, start with, you know, being inspired by what we believe to be the most intelligent um, uh, thing in the universe, <laughs> our brains, uh, you know, we start looking into that. But then it, you know, you start defining what intelligence is, and usually it's abstracted out to the point where it doesn't necessarily have to be in your brain. Um, and uh, which brings you to artificial intelligence. And, and a good way to understand, figure things out is to actually try to implement them yourself. So, you know, you, uh, you look at various different facets, aspects of intelligence, and you go, well, how, how can I implement this? And uh, in the lab, at least, uh, we were able to um, uh, get a sense of how various different uh, aspects of intelligence work. Um, and so that's how I got into that. Um, and then most of my career since my PhD has been to bring what I saw to be so powerful in the lab out to the real world and, and make it applied. So that start, started from my um, first startup um, back in 98, uh, where we were trying to get uh, systems to understand you. You could, you could talk to your TV set was the initial idea. Um, so you don't have to know where, uh, something is playing. You know, you want to watch the tennis game, you just ask for it. And it, you know, the name of the channel is, is really not important anymore. That was the beginning of it, uh, all the way to my last startup, which was sentient technologies, where we started thinking about like scaling intelligence, um, through throwing a lot of processing capacity and, and storage at it. Um, and then trying to make a lot of money off, uh, the stock market. So it always has to start with this big idea, like big ambitious idea. So that's how I got into it. It's amazing work. And we're just, we're in the very early days of it, you know, with AI and then AGI as well. And, you know, and one of the things that I was at a conference a few years ago, it was at, in Toronto, it was uh, basically a Mars, not the planet, but uh, basically a research organization that's there. And uh, one of the talks was talking about how by 2030, and of course, this is before the pandemic, they said that 25% of the jobs that exist today will no longer exist by 2030. And it wasn't because of economic downturns or recessions or depressions or things like that. It's just technology advancement, AI, and other things would make those jobs obsolete. And I'm sure that this pandemic may have fast forwarded that a little bit in certain aspects of it. And at first, a lot of people go, well, who's going to find work? It's like, well, you know what? You, you're going to find opportunities in other areas instead of those roles that, quite frankly, a lot of the roles that are being replaced were you know, roles that we're finding today very difficult to fill because people don't want to necessarily work in that type of job now. So uh, there's so many different aspects of AI um, and I've used the talking to the remote or our smartphones or things like that, but that's just, you know, very, very basic compared to, you know, the advances and the things that I'm sure that you've seen and worked on. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, the jobs thing is always a question. Um, I remember back when, uh, personal computers were, uh, coming out and, um, everybody had a computer and could write software even before the internet, um, I was working at the time with, um, at, at the, um, university, uh, 
software lab, they had a PC. And, and so we had a long commute. We had like a 25-minute, 30-minute commute by minibus. And back then, to me, that was a long commute. Um, and university professors were on that minibus. And each time, one of them would be sitting next to me asking me whether their job can one day be done by computers. And so that, that fear of... Um, you know, lack of job security because technology is taking over has been there forever. And it's never been fulfilled. I mean, it's always, I think Gartner had some sort of assessment a couple of years ago that said there's going to be a net gain of an obscene number. I don't remember what it was of new jobs just simply because of the advent of big data and, and AI. Um, and we do see that now, as you said, the jobs shift and people move into new, uh, hopefully fulfilling uh, jobs. Um, and there are certain jobs that right now, even the state of the art in AI is not able to do. I get pulled into a lot of cases where people expect a lot from AI. That's been an issue, um, this high expectation. Um, and I look into it and I'm like, we can't do that. The state of the art is not able to do that. Like... Uh, the other day, actually, they were saying, can AI help us decide how many people to assign to a statement of work? We have these state statements of work coming in and we need to like really be smart about how we do the resource assignment and so forth. And it turned out they only have like 20 or 30 statements of work and each one is very, very different than the other. And I'm like, that. there's no artificial intelligence that can read the statement of work and make a you know, smart judgment about how many people and know about like the various different talents in the talent pool and so forth. That's a very, very human general intelligence kind of application. And we're much better at it than, uh, than our machines right now. So yeah, I think um, rest assured, uh, we're not going to lose our jobs anytime soon, but jobs will change. And that rate of change could be a cause for concern because that rate of change is itself accelerating. Yeah, I was speaking with uh, somebody uh, a few years ago that uh, writes for Forbes, and he's over in the UK and uh, you know, loves Tottenham. You know the the all right. English Premier I'm a League. Liverpool fan myself. There you go. Same. I, I was so happy they finally cashed one in. Was it two years ago now, or was it last year? I mean, two years ago. Two years ago. <laughs> this pandemic is blurred time, so I always have to ask you, like, was that 2020 or was that 2021? They well, see, it, it, it took 30 years to get there, so yeah, you know, so it's, it's the highlight of the last you know decade for me. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. They did well yesterday too in Champions. They did. So, they um, did. Fingers crossed on that. But so he, you know, he was talking about Tottenham and their new stadium or newish stadium and how they utilize. AI for their season ticket holders and it uses facial recognition and scanning of the tickets and things like that, even to the point where, so they, they see you come in and they know, okay, you, he usually, or she usually orders this type of food, this kind of beverage and things like that. And it gets delivered to their seat. Now where the human side of things comes in, it's like, wait a minute, maybe I, I don't want to have that beer today. I want to have something different. So there's issues where that where AI is not going to recognize my personal choice on that particular day. But even to the point where with a facial scan and the body scan type of thing, they'll look and say, wait a minute, you're wearing a rather old jersey. Would you like to 
get a brand new one. Here's 25% off. So it, it's, it's trying to impact behavior on some things. And again, that's, that's from a marketing and branding type of scenario. But again, there's, there's all of that, but that, that, that's the spurs. We don't need to talk about them. So, uh, but, <laughs> yeah, but, Liverpool. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, you know, from that, let's segue to this book. Um, and, you know, it's a memoir from what you told me. And I, I think it's always important to ask this question of authors is why would you sacrifice so much of your personal time to write a book? Because it's a sacrifice to sit down, write, edit, get the book cover, all the fun stuff we get to do when we publish books. But I'm always curious when I talk with authors is, you know, what, what motivated you to put this book out in the wild? Uh, it was the stories. I, I uh, had a, you know, 45, 50 minute commute here on BART, the, the, um, the, the train system here in the Bay Area. And, um, and back then in 2012, 2013, we didn't have good cell phone coverage. So there wasn't much to do. I had my laptop with me and I started writing down these stories. Um, uh, there was a point in time when I felt like I've told the story, you know, one too many times in a party or in a gathering. And let me just write it down. <laughs> and uh, so just get it out of the way. Um, the joke is if I'm in a party now, I can just point at the chapter and say, go read that. But it was really about the stories. I felt like there are some really interesting stories that people can relate to. And the fact is that that juxtaposition of a relatively westernized um, youngster growing up in a you know, weird place after the revolution with, as you said, similarities and differences to what we're used to, um, made for a, a few really interesting uh, stories and I wrote them down. Um, I know, I mean, the stories are personal. They do hopefully also chart the beginnings of how I became an entrepreneur um, and what, what that drive is, how you, how you get that drive to, you know, almost like prove something. Uh, so there is some of that, but um, it was less about my biography uh, and more about whether there was each story kind of stands alone. There's a story that starts at some point, some things happen, there are twists and turns, it's funny, it's scary, whatever, and then there's a conclusion. And so that was, uh, there were many stories, though, that was the reason why we picked these ones into, into this book. It's called The Konar and the Apple. Um, and uh, just came out. Um, so, you know, hopefully people will, uh, will enjoy it. I'm sure they will. So of all the stories that you have in there, which one, I don't know how to phrase this, which one surprised you as far as maybe any emotions or laughter or something like that you hadn't reflected on in a long time? What, which one really stands out? Because I know there's many in the book, but is there one in particular that really jumps out? Oh, there are a few that um, even though it's a story that uh, very familiar for me and I, I I've told it many many times but when I wrote it down every time I read it I you know um, I get teary-eyed and and um, uh, you know it's mainly about moving immigration change you know that sort of thing can can hit you but the story that um, surprised me was I actually started writing about this uh, board game the soccer board game that we invented, my, me and my friends, uh, we were teenagers, bored at home, uh, big soccer fans, and we decided let's uh, let's let's make this thing up. And uh, I've I've 
written down the process, how it came about, that boredom that resulted into this creation, and then how um, uh, the rules came about and how we played it and how it took off. Like other folks learned how to play it. And, you know, um, I ran into strangers later on that were playing it. Um, and while it may sound kind of, you know, not as interesting, it, it, it turned out to be this kind of virtual world that we created. We were playing club championship and world cups that were all make-believe. We were publishing magazines about it, uh, all make-believe. Um, and so we created this virtual like meta world back when there was no internet, no PC uh, that we started living in and we enjoyed living in. Um, and uh, anyway, that story, every time I read it, I'm like, wow, this was this is fascinating. It's amazing. And there are so many analogies to the world we live in today. Um, and uh, I'll tell you a little story. After the book came out, uh, my brother's son uh, he's 11 years old and he got inspired by that chapter and he actually created that board game <laughs> at home. And so I didn't know that we were visiting one time. He's like, uncle, come here, let's play. And he had the whole thing laid out and he had the rule book and the teams and everything. And, uh, suddenly, you know, 40 years after the first time we played the game, we, we played it again, which was fun. Oh, that was and, and I was I was also surprised, Michael, to find out that a lot of people, like some, there are some reviews for the book coming out now, strangers reading the book. That's kind of weird for me. It's my first book. Uh, but they have mentioned that story. I thought that was a personal story um, and maybe a little too technical because I went into the weeds with the, with the rules of the game and all that. But they, they did highlight it as, as one of the more powerful stories. So um, fortunately, it seems to have resonated. Well, it captures the creativity of you and your friends, you know, all those years ago. And yeah, that moment when, when your, your nephew says, Hey, come here, let's play a game. And you, and you see your creation recreated to, you know, the degree, which doesn't surprise me. It's in your family's DNA, I'm guessing where, you know, people just do all kinds of amazing things, but, you know, especially for an 11 year old, it's like, keep, Make and I'm sure your you know your your siblings are doing a great job. Obviously, if at 11 they're doing that already, but you know, nurture that creativity. Do not allow anybody, society, or anybody else to stunt that creativity yeah. because they're going to create some amazing work as you have in this world. And boy, the world needs more more people to be creative and like let's let's just play. And I yeah. think that's. That's the thing, you know, I talk about burnout and all that stuff. And that's one of the things that I see absent in many people that are stressed and working too much and all that is, where's the playtime? I know, love where? that. Yeah, exactly. The play, the humor in it, you know, the, um, we, we, yeah, you, you said it, we're creative beings and we can actually create that environment in our heads or virtually uh, that that we want to be living in. So if 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 we do that, then it's less about complaining about how the world is treating you. It's more about you know making the world the way you want it to be. <laughs> um, so yeah, absolutely. Play and humor. I think they're very important. Exactly, and they're good for our our physical health and definitely our mental health. So definitely. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find out more about you, the book, and all this other amazing work you do? 
Uh, yeah, the book is available on uh, Amazon, the Konar and the Apple. Um, and um, hopefully you'll uh, include a link in the, in the show notes. Um, and uh, just search me up on, on Google. I'm uh, uh, on the internet. I'm sure you'll find a lot. Uh, so yeah, for sure. Um, uh, would love to hear from your uh, audience as to what they think about the, the book. So please drop me a line. Yeah, I'll definitely have all of that information in the show notes. So again, thank you so much for for coming on, sharing those stories, and um, and continue to root for Liverpool as they they fight. You never the walk alone, Looks- Michael. You never walk alone. Exactly. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to the Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.